The topic that I will be talking about today is uh, parenting. And, you know, it's not an easy topic to, uh, to discuss. In fact, it's a very challenging topic to discuss. And for many years, I had been uh, reluctant to speak about it. I've been invited by uh, schools, by uh, uh, parents groups, by, by general audiences uh, to speak about parenting. And I would always say no. And the reason I said no was because I felt that I wasn't qualified to talk about it. Yes, I'd read the research. Uh, I'd conducted some research. Um, I have uh, three kids of my own. And yet I felt that as a parent, I wasn't an expert, or at least not enough of an expert. I was making too many mistakes as a parent. I remember um, one day talking to a, a good friend of mine who is a child psychologist. Her name is uh, Shirley. And I said to her, Shirley, you know, this was when David, our eldest son, was six years old. I said to her, Shirley, I wish I had known six years ago what I know today about parenting, because then I wouldn't have made all those mistakes. And she said to me, Tal, don't worry about it. You would have made other mistakes. And this was a very important statement for me to hear about the inevitability of mistakes in parenting. And I started to think about parenting in a different way. In fact, in the same way that I think about happiness. You know, when people say to me, Tal, are you happy? My answer is that I don't know. Because I don't think there is a point before which one is happy or before which one is unhappy, after which one is happy. It's not a zero one. Instead of it being binary zero one, what it is, it's a continuum. In other words, when people ask me, are you happy? I say to them, well, today I'm a lot happier than I was 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but I certainly hope that five years from now or 10 years from now, I will be happier than I am today. In other words, it's a journey. It's a lifelong journey, a journey that ends when life ends. The same with parenting. Am I a good parent? I don't know. I'm certainly a better parent than I was 10 years ago. At the same time, I hope to be a better parent 10 years from now. But I will never be a perfect parent and I will always make mistakes, just like you will. In fact, mistakes are an important part of parenting. One of the most famous child psychologists is a man by the name of Donald Winnicott. Donald Winnicott was a child psychologist back in the 20th century. He died uh, quite a few years ago. And his most famous idea is what he called the good enough mother. He said what 
a parent or a mother should strive for is to be good enough. Not perfect, good enough. Why? And by the way, this doesn't just apply to mothers, of course. He wrote back in the 1950s and 60s when mothers um, used to be responsible or only mothers used to be responsible for childcare. Today, more and more fathers are also interested. So this is about being a good enough mother or a good enough father. It's about being a good enough parent. Why did he talk about the good enough mother? Why didn't he talk about the perfect mother? Wouldn't you like to be the perfect parent? Wouldn't you like to be a parent who makes no mistakes? His argument is that no. Why? Because what does the perfect parent look like? The perfect parent is always attentive to the child's needs. The child cries, the parent is there. The child needs something in school, the parent helps. The child is struggling, the parent is there to make it better, easier. The question though, if we had such a, if we had such a perfect parent, would that be good for us? If we were a perfect parent, would that be good for our children? The answer is no. It would not. Why? Because then the child would not learn how to deal with difficulties because we would always be there for him. We would always be there for her. We could take care of everything. We'd be perfect. And our child will not get the opportunity to deal with the hardships, with difficulties, with challenges. And therefore being good enough and making mistakes actually provides the child with opportunities for growth, for development. It is much healthier for a child to have a good enough parent than a perfect parent. So the first point that I'm making today is that we need to feel a little bit lighter a little bit easier on ourselves. We don't need to be perfect. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't want to improve as parents to be better parents? Of course not. Of course, we should strive to be better parents. But this would be just like, I want to be happier. Not happy because it's not zero or one. Not perfect because it's not a bad parent or a good parent. But just like I want to be happier, I want to be a better parent. And this is what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk about three ways that research in positive psychology, in the science of happiness, can inform us on how we can become good enough parents, how we can become better parents today than we were yesterday and better five years from now than we are today. The three topics that I would like to address are first, the topic of failure and the importance of allowing our children to fail. The second topic that I'd like to address is around success. What do we do when our children succeed? How do we praise them? in a way that will motivate them and will help them grow. And the final topic that I'd like to address today is the idea of 
quality. How can we get our children to produce quality work in whatever they do and experience quality, not just today, but when they're adults for the rest of their lives? Quality in school, quality in their relationships, quality in their work. So these are the three topics that I will address today that will hopefully help you become a better parent. Not perfect, but better. So let me begin with the first topic, failure. One of the challenges that we have as parents, especially in the 21st century, much more so than in the past, is to allow our children to fail more often. One of the mantras, one of the sentences that I repeat over and over and over again, whether it's to myself, whether it's to my students, whether it's to my clients, whether it's first and foremost to my children, is learn to fail or fail to learn. It turns out that there is no other way to fulfill our potential for learning than through failure. Failure is an important and an inevitable step towards success, not just towards success, towards happiness as well. Let me share you a study that was done, conducted by Dean Simonton from the University of California, Davis. Dean Simonton did historical research, looking at the most successful people throughout history from all over the world, east, west, north, and south. The most successful people in the world. What he found was that their defining characteristic, what was unique about them relative to other people, is that they failed many more times than others. They failed many more times than others. He looked at the top artists in the world. He looked at the top scientists throughout history. Yes, they were unique in that they succeeded more than others. But before they succeeded, they failed many more times than others. And therefore, I agree with Albert Hubbard, who says that the greatest mistake a man can make is to be afraid of making one. Because if we don't learn how to fail, we fail to learn. We fail to fulfill our potential, both for success as well as for happiness. So this is what Albert Hubbard said. I would like to slightly modify his sentence and say that the greatest mistake a parent can make is to be afraid of allowing their children to make mistakes. The biggest mistakes parents make is being afraid to, that being afraid to allow their children to make mistakes. Why? Because there is no other way to learn. I mean, think about it. How did you 
or your children learn how to walk. They learned how to walk by falling down time and time again. Now imagine this. Imagine if you said to yourself, I don't want my child to be hurt. I love my child too much. I don't want my child to fall down. So each time your child was about to get up, you would keep them down. You would say, no, 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 don't get up because if you get up, you'll fall, which they will inevitably. And for a long time, they fall time and time again. So you don't want them to hurt themselves. So every time they try to get up, you push them back down. What will happen to your child? I'll tell you what will happen. What will happen is that your child will never learn how to walk. Your child will never learn how to walk. Why? Because your child will not get the opportunity to fail. You learn to fail or you fail to learn. So that's walking. How about eating? How do children learn how to eat? Are they just born and you know you put chopsticks in their hands and so beautifully they pick up the food, so elegantly put it in their mouth? Are they born with this ability? Of course not. How do they learn how to eat? By doing this, by making a mess, by dropping food on the floor, by getting missing the food, not going into their mouth, but into their faces, or by getting you dirty. Learn to fail or fail to learn. There is no other way. Now, this applies to every area in life. It applies to learning how to be a better partner. We're not born knowing how to have great relationships. We learn how to be better partners over time. How? By making mistakes. And if we learn how to fail, we also learn how to apologize when we make mistakes. And we learn from that failure and we're better next time. And then we make other mistakes. We learn how to be better parents through making mistakes. That's what Shirley said to me. Don't worry, you would have made other mistakes. And you know what? Not necessarily a bad thing because our children also learn from our mistakes. How do we learn mathematics? By getting everything right the first time? No, by trying, figuring out, making mistakes. How do scientists do their work through experiments? And what happens when we conduct experiments? We make mistakes. How do we learn how to become athletes or business people. And let me give you, in fact, some examples. Here is an example of arguably the greatest inventor of all time, Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison invented, patented 1,093 inventions, by far more than any other person in history. Most people in the world haven't in, invented one thing. He invented 1,093 things, including the light bulb, including the um, uh, film, movies, including the hearing aid. In fact, there's a story about uh, Thomas Edison. One of his inventions was the battery. 
so the battery that you're using in your phone today or the battery that you're using in your uh, you know, light, wherever, you have Thomas Edison to thank. So he invented the battery or he worked on the battery. And uh, at that time, um, he had conducted uh, 1,000 experiments trying to invent the battery and he wasn't successful. And a journalist came over to interview him and said to him, um, um, interviewed him about different things. He was already famous, he'd invented the light bulb. He asked him about various things and then he wanted to talk to him about the things that he's working on right now. So they talked about the battery and he said to him, Mr. Edison, you have been working on the battery for uh, a long time. You have conducted 1,000 experiments and you have failed 1,000 times. Give it up. Now, Thomas Edison was hard of hearing. That's, he invented the hearing aid for himself initially. So Thomas Edison said, excuse me, what did you say? So the journalist said, Mr. Edison, you have failed 1,000 times. Give it up. To which Thomas Edison responded, I haven't failed 1,000 times. I have succeeded 1,000 times. I have succeeded in showing what doesn't work. It took Thomas Edison about 1,000 more experiments until he finally invented the battery that we are using till this very day. Thomas Edison once said, I failed my way to success. Because he understood that if you don't learn to fail, you fail to learn. His mother reminded this to him when he was a child, day in and day out. Experiment, try things, fail and fail again. It's not just Thomas Edison. Look at Anita Roddick. Anita Roddick, one of the greatest businesswomen of the 20th century. She founded the body shop, which has become an empire all over the world. She writes in her book, Business as Unusual. It's her autobiography. What does she write about? Failure after failure after failure, and then some more failure, and then success, and then more and more and more and more failures. There is no other way. You know, I recently attended a, a beautiful exhibit of uh, Michelangelo's work, but it wasn't his completed work. It was a, a, an exhibit of his rough drafts of his experiments. So, my, so Michelangelo's most famous statue is David. David is a huge, beautiful statue. It looks almost flawless, almost perfect. And yet, in order to get to that level, Michelangelo had to make numerous mistakes. In the exhibit that I attended, they showed a series of arms that he drew, that he sketched. One arm, and then another arm, and then another arm. All these were David's arms, and he drew one, two, three. There were dozens of arms until he was satisfied. 
And then he created that arm on the marble. He failed many times before he succeeded. You see it in business, you see it in science, you see it in art, you see it in sports as well. The greatest athletes in the world try and try again. You know, the basketball, the NBA basketball player, um, uh, Sam Lin or, or LeBron James or, or, or uh, Michael Jordan, they fail so many times. They shoot and shoot and shoot. And they miss and they miss and, they, and then they get it in. And then again and again. There is no other way. Whether you learn how to walk or eat or do business or be in a relationship or be a parent. And we as parents need to give our children the opportunity to fail and fail again. And we do not do it enough. We do not do it enough because we help our children often too much. Sunia Luthar is a professor at Columbia University in New York City, originally from India. Her research is on parenting. And she has come up with the concept of the underprivilege of privilege. Specifically what she shows is that children of well-to-do parents, you know, parents who are wealthy, who have the means um, to, uh, to educate their children, um, who can give and provide for their children, very often in those children, we see the same issues, the same problems that we see in the poorest children in our society. In other words, we're seeing characteristics among the very wealthy, the very successful. We see the same characteristics and same challenges that we see among the least successful, the most struggling of families. Why? Because parents who have the means, who are successful, overindulge their children. Do not let their children fail enough. Protect them too much. And then their children do not learn, do not grow. I mean, think about it. An idea that is related to learn to fail or fail to learn is the idea of going to the gym. Imagine if you go to the gym and all the weights there are on zero. In other words, it's very easy for you to lift the weights. No resistance. You will not get stronger. In other words, you need the resistance. It needs to be hard, challenging for you to grow stronger. The same in life. If parents make it too easy for their children, their children will not grow, will not develop. And as a result of it, they will not be able to deal with difficulties and hardships later on in life. They will struggle much more than they need to struggle because things were made too easy for them. I want to share with you a story about, um, about David, our son. So when uh, David was three years old, about three years old, 
my wife and I uh, picked him up from daycare. And David, just so you know, when he was three, had a little doll, a Superman doll. It was his favorite toy in the whole world. He loved this little Superman doll. At night when he went to sleep, it was right next to his pillow. Uh, during the day, he would take it with him everywhere. He would talk to the doll. He really loved Superman. So we picked him up from daycare one day and we took him home and um, we entered our apartment building and we lived on the 10th floor. So we entered the elevator and my wife and I were talking to, to one another. And at the same time, David is talking to the doll. And we're walk, uh, we reach the 10th floor, we walk out. And as we walk out, David drops Superman. Now this Superman cannot fly. This Superman falls right into the elevator pier. It's gone. Mommy and daddy can't get it back. And David begins to cry. Now I see my son crying and I'm about to say something. But before I say something, my wife, Tommy, puts her hand on my hand, stopping me. As usual, she knows what I'm about to say before I say it. Now, what I was about to say was, David, don't worry. Um, I'll get you another Superman doll. I can afford it. I can get you a hundred Superman dolls. That's what I was going to say. But my wife stopped me. So we walk into the apartment, David runs to his room crying. And I say to my wife, Tommy, why did you stop me? Listen to our child crying. And she said to me the following sentence. She said, Tal, do not deprive David of the opportunity to deal with hardship. Do not deprive David of the opportunity to learn from a difficult experience. This was one of the most important lessons for me as a parent. She was absolutely right. Now, does this mean that I will never get him or should not get him another Superman doll? No, maybe I could, and that's okay. However, it's okay also to let him struggle and to let him deal with the hardship by himself. Let me share with you a quote by Clay Christensen, who passed away just two years ago. He was my professor at Harvard Business School. Clay Christensen says the following about the importance of hardships and struggles and challenges for children. The challenges your children will face serve an important purpose. They help them hone and develop the capabilities they need to succeed throughout their lives. Coping with a difficult teacher, failing at a sport, learning to navigate the complex social structure of cliques in school, all those things become courses in the school of experience. Now ask yourself this question, do your children get enough of these lessons? Do they fail enough? Do they struggle enough? 
The key here, the important thing here is to let your child struggle to a point. It doesn't mean that we should just let our children be by themselves from the age of one and never help them. Of course, we should help them. Of course, we should be there for them when they need us. Very often we are there when they do not need us, when they can struggle themselves, overcome difficulties themselves. When they can deal with the hardship and manage themselves. And then when we help them, we're preventing them from struggling, we're preventing them from getting stronger, we're preventing them from growing. We're not helping them, we're hurting them. Remember, we don't want the perfect parent who's always there for the children. We want the good enough parent who can help the children struggle, fail, grow stronger as a result. So this is the first idea that I wanted to share with you, allowing our children to fail. The second idea has to do with the other side of the coin, which is what do we do when our children succeed? How do we praise our children when they succeed? Well, here is what we do. What we do is we teach them how to continue to succeed. I would like to draw on the work of Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is a professor from Stanford University. And um, Carol Dweck did the following study that I'd like to share with you, which to my mind is uh, probably the most important study that I've come across when it comes to children. Here is what she did. She brought children, 10-year-old children, but this applies to, it applies to eight-year-olds and it applies to 18-year-olds. She brought in a group of 10-year-old um, children and had them take a test. The test was an IQ test, which was uh, difficult but age appropriate. So all children who participated in this test actually could do very well once they were given enough time. So she gave them enough time, all the children did very well. And then she randomly divided them into two groups. The first group, after they completed the test and they did well, each one separately, she said the following sentence. She said to them, well done, you are so smart, you are so intelligent. After all, they did well on this test. They need to be praised. You are so smart, you are so intelligent, she said. The second group did the same test, performed as well as the other group. And afterwards, she said to them again, each one separately, she said to them, well done, you worked so hard, you put so much effort into it. So half of the people were told that they're smart, that they're intelligent. The other half of the people were told that they worked hard, that they put effort into it. 
So this was part one of the study. Part two of the study. She asked all participants whether they wanted to take another test which was very hard, but that they could learn from, or very easy, that they could easily succeed at. The first group that was told, you're so smart, you're so intelligent, the majority of them, most of them said, I want to do the easy test. The second group that was told earlier, you worked so hard, you put so much effort into it, over 90% wanted the more difficult test, the more challenging test. So that was part two of the study. Part three of the same study. She actually gave them a test which was too difficult, which they probably could not solve. What did she find? Most of the students from the first group, the group that was told, you're so smart, you're so intelligent earlier, most of those students got angry, upset. Some of them just walked out of the room and left because they couldn't solve the problems. The second group that was earlier told, you worked so hard, you put so much effort into it. They actually continued trying. They enjoyed it. They tried different things and invested more effort into it, trying to solve it, not getting upset like the first group did. So that was part three. Part four of the study, the last part, she gave them once again, a test that was as difficult as the very first test that they took. The same level, age appropriate, challenging, but age appropriate. The first group that was told earlier, you're so smart, you're so intelligent. They performed 16% worse on the test the second time they took it. The second group that was told earlier, you worked so hard, you put so much effort into it. They performed 17% better than they did the first time. In other words, they improved while the first group got worse. Look at the effect that a single sentence or two sentences have on our well-being, on our motivation, on our performance. You're so intelligent, you're so smart versus you worked so hard, you put so much effort into it. Look at how important it is, how we as parents respond to success, to the success of our children. Why does it make such a big difference? Because when we tell a child that they're smart, that they're intelligent, that is the fixed mindset that we are creating. The fixed mindset is about, well, I'm smart. I was born that way. I'm talented. This is my gift. And then all I want to do is maintain this belief in myself and in you, my parent, that I'm smart and intelligent. So how do I maintain it? By uh, taking easy tests because then I'll do well and then you'll continue to think that I'm smart and intelligent. 
This is a fixed mindset. In contrast, when I'm told that I work hard, that I put effort into it, that's the growth mindset. Why? Because I can always work harder. I can grow. This is how I develop. So I will try harder in a more difficult test and I will continue to grow, continue to put effort into it. The fixed versus growth mindset. In the words of Carol Dweck, emphasizing effort gives a child a variable that they can control. They come to see themselves as in control of their success. Emphasizing natural intelligence takes it out of the child's control and it provides no good recipe for responding to a failure. She continues, when you praise kids' intelligence and then they fail, they think they're not smart anymore and they lose interest in their work. In contrast, kids praised for effort show no impairment and often are energized in the face of difficulty. We as parents, and I say we because me too, so often make the mistake of praising our children for talent, for intelligence, for beauty. These are all things that they can be, do nothing about or can do very little about. They're born in a certain way. And we put them in the fixed mindset, not on purpose, not because we're bad or because we want to hurt them. It comes with good intentions. We want them to be confident. But in order to develop real confidence, real skills, the growth mindset, we need to focus on the things that they have control over, such as how hard they work, such as how much effort they put into it. Now, does this mean you should never tell your child that she is smart or that he is handsome? I don't think we should go to the extreme. However, we should focus a lot more on the things that they have control over. So often, you know, if I would say to my, to, to, to my daughter, oh, you're so smart, my wife would immediately add, oh, and you worked so hard at it. It's important to add the growth mindset to the mix. This is how children grow from their successes. So I talked about two ideas. I talked about the um, uh, allowing children to fail, and I talked about responding in the growth mindset way to success. The last topic, before I open it up for your questions that I want to address is the idea of quality. I've always been intrigued by the idea of quality, but the time when I really understood its importance was when I heard a lecture by a young man by the name of Josh Waitskin. Josh Waitskin is actually quite famous, especially in the United States and around the world. As a child, he was uh, the world junior champion in chess, one of the greatest prospects in, uh, in the history of chess. In fact, a movie was made about him called Chasing Bobby Fischer. 
a Hollywood movie. So he was very famous as a child. Uh, when he was about 18, he gave up chess because he said, I lost the love of it. It became all about winning. So he was a, a, a champion, one of the best chess players in the world, but he gave it up. But he didn't give up excellence. In fact, a few years later, he emerged, this time as the world champion in Tai Chi Chuan, in push hands Tai Chi, world champion. So Josh Waitskin knows what success is. He's brilliant, he's strong, he's successful. And he gave a lecture to a company in New York that I was also lecturing to, and I was listening to him speaking. He spoke just after me. And he said that the most important thing, if we want our children to flourish, to flourish means to be happy, to be successful when they grow up, is we need to get them to experience quality. He says, we need to help our children experience quality somewhere in their lives. And he says, it doesn't matter where. It could be that they experience quality in, uh, in, um, in chess or in Tai Chi, or they can experience quality in, uh, in basketball or in mathematics or in uh, folding papers or in cooking or in ballet, experience quality somewhere. And he says, it doesn't matter where, why? Because he said that if you, if a child or a person experiences quality in one place, they can experience it anywhere else. In other words, quality is transportable. You can trans transport it from chess to parenting. You can transport it from cooking to leadership because there are certain characteristics in quality that are the same no matter what you do. Whether you experience it in sports, whether you experience it in interpersonal relations, whether you experience it in public speaking, whether you experience it in art, experience it somewhere. And our role as parents is to help our children experience quality. And it doesn't matter where. Now, what does that actually mean to experience quality? Like, let me break it down to you based on some research from psychology, specifically research on strengths. You see, the focus in psychology has mostly been throughout history on weaknesses. And then comes positive psychology, the science of happiness, and focuses on strengths. It doesn't mean we ignore weaknesses, but what it says is that when we focus on strengths, whether it's our children's strength, our own strength, our organizational strengths, we become happier as well as more successful than if we focus primarily on weaknesses. Now, when we talk about strengths, we're essentially talking about two different kinds of strengths. The first strength is about asking the performance question. 
In other words, it's about asking, what are my strengths? What am I good at? For example, am I good um, in cooking? Am I good at chess? Am I good in mathematics? Am I good at movement, dance? Have I got good coordination? Am I good at listening? Is my strength writing or strategizing? What are my strengths? What am I good at? This is about performance and it's about skills, the places that I can improve relatively easily where I have talents. This is the conventional way of talking about strength, performance strength. But then there are also passion strengths, which is no less important. Passion strengths are not about asking what are my strengths or what am I good at, but rather about asking what gives me strength, what energizes me, what am I passionate about? Is it, am I passionate about cooking? Does it energize me each time I get into the kitchen? Am I passionate about folding papers and making beautiful art? Is that what energizes me? Or is it studying chess moves? Is that what I'm passionate about? Is that what energizes me? Is it thinking about strategy? Is it listening to other people talk? I'm just a, a passionate listener. Is that my passion strength? And that's much more about experience, having a positive experience. Now, both forms of strengths are important for quality. Why? Because quality resides in the overlap between passion strengths and performance strengths. Specifically, let me give you an example. So for me, a performance strength is uh, doing research. I'm actually quite good at doing research. I can see data, I, I can make sense of it. I'm good at mathematics. It's a performance strength. But, you know, it's not really my passion to do research. Let me give you another example, music. Music is a passion strength of mine. I love listening to music. However, it's not a performance strength of mine. You don't want to hear me sing. So on the one hand, research performance strength, but not passion strength. On the other hand, music passion strength, but not performance strength. Writing, on the other hand, is a performance strength and a passion strength. And that's where I, where I personally experience quality. My most important teacher that I've ever had was a teacher who encouraged me to write because she encouraged me to experience quality in one area of my life, which I then take to the way I parent and to my relationship and to my lecturing and to everything that I do. And the question for all of us is, where are our passion strengths? Where are our performance strengths so that we can experience quality? And no less important, where are my child's performance strengths? Where are their talents? Where are their passion strengths? 
And where are the strengths that are both passion and performance? And then encourage them to act there in that area of quality. And here is the thing. We all have strengths. As Buckingham and Clifton from the Gallup organization wrote, the real tragedy of life is not that each of us doesn't have enough strength. It's that we fail to use the ones we have. And that's a tragedy for us as individuals, and it's a tragedy for our children, that we get them to do things that are not in that performance and passion strength overlap. We don't encourage them. Why? Because we think they should do things that others thinks they sh think they should do. Oh, you love to, to dance? But forget dance. It won't get you anywhere. You need to do mathematics. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't do mathematics. I'm not saying ignore weaknesses. What I'm saying is that in addition to doing mathematics, they also need to do dance. Or if their passion is cooking, don't say, well, I don't want you to be a cook. I want you to be an engineer. Stop cooking. Start studying engineering. Now, I'm not saying they should stop studying engineering or mathematics, but why not indulge in cooking as well where they can experience quality? And who knows where that will take them? You want happy children? You want successful children? You want flourishing children? Get them to experience quality. And one of the ways to get them to experience quality is to lead by example so that they see you in your area of strength, experience, quality. So this is it. We don't need to be perfect. We don't need to be perfect today and we don't need to be perfect 10 years from now. It's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to be good enough. The question though is how do we get better? And what I discussed today are just some ways of getting a little bit better. How? By allowing our children to fail a little bit more by focusing when they succeed on their effort, on their hard work, and by helping them experience quality anywhere in their lives so that they can replicate it everywhere in their lives. Parenting is challenging. Parenting is hard. At the same time, it's also the most rewarding thing that we can do. And the nice thing about it is that when we grow as parents, not only do our children benefit, but we benefit just as much, if not more. Because all these things, allowing ourselves to fail, focusing on effort and hard work and experiencing quality, they're important for every human being, whether that human being is three years old or 13 or 30 or 90. It's important for all of us to become happier, to become better human beings. Thank you.